Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with historyhub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the historyhub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Owen Kinsella, a PhD student at University College Dublin. His thesis examines Catholic politics and society in Ireland in the later Stuart and Williamite eras. He has published articles on Catholic lobbying and land possession in the 17th century, as well as on early modern hurling and football. His paper is entitled Colonel John Brown, Jacobite Soldier, Lawyer and Entrepreneur. So John Brown of Westport was a figure of significant importance among Irish Catholics during the reigns of James II and William III, yet is not very well known. He established himself as Connacht's greatest landowner in just 17 years, between 1668 and 1685, with property in counties Galway, Mayo, Sligo, Roscommon, Clare and Dublin. Brown was one of the few men to procure a clause in the 1689 Act of Repeal to save part of his estate. He also owned and operated salt mines and ironworks. And it was these ironworks that ensured his importance to James II, as he became the principal supplier of material to the Jacobite army in 1690 and in 1691. In the process, Brown established himself as one of the most influential Irish Jacobites, later acting as negotiator and signatory to the Articles of Limerick. He used this position to secure a controversial personal article that ensured that all Catholics who retained their land during the Williamite confiscation of the 1690s would share liability for ruinously large debts owed by Brown to Irish Protestants. It was thus an article punitive to Catholics inserted in a surrender that they themselves negotiated. Now, the appearance of this personal article, Article 13 of Limerick, has not yet been satisfactorily explained. And what I'd like to do is to give an outline of Brown's rise within Connacht society and his emergence as an integral cog in the Jacobite war effort. Um, I'll also offer an explanation for the appearance of Article 13 of Limerick, as well as a theory as to the notorious lapse on the part of the Jacobite signatories to the Articles, whereby they signed an incorrect or defective draft of the Articles. I'll conclude with a brief outline of the implementation of Article 13, its impact on Catholics and Brown's debts. So the Brown family were first established at the Neil in County Mayo in the 1580s and was initially Protestant. During the tumults of the 1640s, Brown's father appears to have converted to Catholicism and took the Confederate side. For his pains, he suffered local transplantation during the 1650s, but the evidence suggests that Brown Sr. actually increased the size of his estate by the time of Charles II's restoration, and he was one of those named as deserving of the King's grace and favour in the Act of Settlement of 1662. Now, as a second son, John Brown did not stand to inherit this estate. After some initial support from his father, who sponsored his education, Brown was thereafter a self-made man. He was admitted, admitted to study law at Gray's Inn, London, in April 1662. And this admission marked him as one of the first of a new wave of Irishmen, Catholic and Protestant, who attended the Inns of Court after the Restoration and saw new possibilities in the study of the law, especially with regard to the many legal uncertainties surrounding much of the Restoration land settlement. Following his call to the Irish Bar in February 1669, Brown quickly established himself in a good practice in Ireland and was prominent in the Court of Chancery during the 1670s. Now, the year of his call to the Bar was also the year in which he married Maud Burke, great-great-granddaughter of the pirate Queen Grainne O'Malley and brother to Viscount Mayo. Now, these two events were crucial. Success at the Bar provided him with initial funds for the accumulation of his estate begun in 1668, while the vast majority of his land was in fact obtained from Viscount Mayo. 
Having been loaned substantial sums of money by Brown during the 1670s, Mayo's inability to repay ensured that the vast majority of his estate, perhaps 100,000 acres, was in Brown's hands by 1680. In fact, by the time of James II's accession to the throne in 1685, Brown's estate totaled more than 155,000 acres, larger than even that of the Earl of Clanricord. Brown's landed interest was acquired swiftly and does not appear to have been funded by borrowings, yet by 1685 he had become mired in debt, having borrowed at least 15,000 in the previous eight years. The exact occasion of these borrowings is unclear. Construction of Westport House was begun around this time, which may have been a contributory factor. A more probable cause was the establishment of his ironworks. Ironworks were an expensive business in the 17th century, particularly in their early years of operation. Several thousands of pounds were needed for startup capital for a single ironworks. Brown attempted to establish perhaps six separate ironworks in the 1670s and 1680s. By 1691, his debts had ballooned to £30,000, comprised of interest accrued and further borrowing. And when we consider that the standard annual rate of interest on borrowing was 10%, and that Brown's rental income was between three and £4,000 per annum, this sharp increase in indebtedness was perhaps inevitable. The ironworks are unlikely to have significantly augmented Brown's income. Nonetheless, as a Catholic, a well-regarded lawyer, and one of the most influential men in Connacht, Brown might have expected to feature in the Earl of Tyrconnell's Catholicisation of the Irish government during the reign of James II. The opposite appears to have been the case. Tyrconnell never considered him for public office before 1689. The reason may lie in Brown's status as a new interest landowner, that is, a landowner whose estate had been built since the restoration of Charles II and was thus reliant on the acts of settlement and explanation for the security of their holdings. Tyrconnell's intention was to undo the restoration land settlement, which surely set him at odds with Brown. Brown's failure to sit in the 1689 Parliament is quite surprising, for he surely had the interest within Mayo to secure a seat in Parliament had he wished. Again, Tyrconnell may have played a role in his absence by blocking Brown's election, though that can't be stated with certainty. The 1689 Parliament passed the infamous Act of Repeal, which took away all of the estates of the new interest to be redistributed to those who had lost land in the confiscations of the 1650s. His absence from Parliament, however, did not prevent Brown being one of the few men who secured a clause exempting part of his estate from the provisions of the Act. The majority of his estate was still to be repossessed by the Crown, and the saving clause related specifically to his ironworks. Parliament consented to the saving clause because they judged the ironworks to be, quote, of public advantage to James II, and so they proved. Uh, so if Brown played no part in James II's administration of Ireland prior to 1689, from where does importance to James II arise? Unlike several other new interest landowners who faced eviction from their estates in the event of a Jacobite victory, Brown did not actively seek to undermine the Jacobite war effort. Between August 1689 and the spring of 1690, he raised three regiments for the Jacobite army, thereby attaining the rank of colonel by which he was from that point known. His regiments embarked for France in April 1689, later forming part of the famous Mancashel Regiment in the French army, but Brown did not accompany them. Having been initially ordered to go to France, a post for which he had no desire, Brown successfully fought against redeployment using two stratagems. The first was a tactical delay in obeying orders to bring his troops to Cork for embarkation, provoking the following rebuke from his superior, and the quote is on the slide. Imagine what must be the issue of these matters if a fourth time the king's commands be disobeyed. Imagine of what fatal consequence it may prove to all your relations you have employed, whose blood is like to answer such disobedience, when they shall be found guilty of it by a court-martial. The second strategy was to stress its importance as a supplier to the Jacobite army, 
and it was this argument that proved most persuasive. In October 1689, Brown received orders from James II to use his ironworks to manufacture muskets, cannon, grenade shells, and other more practical implements for fortifying the Jacobite garrisons. The order was later put on a more official footing when Brown signed a contract with the Ordnance Office. The type of musket demanded was quite specific, and again, you can see the description on the slide there. Three and a half feet in length of the barrel, English bore, stocked, socked, and well fixed, with IOR and crown grade on the lock and stamped upon each barrel, and IOR presumably standing for Jacobus Rex. Now, Brown did not have great success in manufacturing firearms. His regular workforce was untrained in this skill, while the Protestant gunsmiths he took with him from Dublin soon deserted the Mayo Ironworks or engineered quarrels with the local populace. Hampered by these setbacks, Brown struggled to meet the demands of the Ordnance Office, and his failure to fulfil the terms of his contract led to a brief incarceration. He was, however, released following an investigation that showed the primary hindrance to be a lack of steel. On the other hand, there's no doubt that Brown provided the Jacobite army with great quantities of other necessities, such as horseshoes, pickaxes, shovels and raw iron. His appointment as a Deputy Lord Lieutenant of Mayo ensured that he played a leading role in securing provisions for the Jacobite army garrisoned in Connacht. Williamite Intelligence from October 1690 noted that the Jacobites had only one operational ironworks, John Brown's in Burris Hill, County Mayo. Now, some of his assistance to the Jacobite army was not given voluntarily. In late 1689, Turconnell and Sarsfield requisitioned at least 200 tonnes of Brand's stock of iron. Nonetheless, Brand's growing preeminence as the Jacobite army's primary supplier ensured his inclusion in a commission to govern the country while Turconnell was in France in late 1690. The tone of his communications with the Ordnance Office was greatly improved in 1691. While this silver candlestick, with an inscription from Patrick Sarsfield, made for a handsome gift in wartime. And from this new position of influence, Brown was able to ensure his inclusion in another crucially important commission, that which negotiated the Articles of Limerick. Now, as I stated at the outset, Brown secured a controversial, last-minute addition to the Articles of Limerick. It was unique among the Articles, for its intended beneficiaries were almost universally Protestant. I've also mentioned that Brown was indebted to the tune of £30,000 by 1691, and that Turconnell and Sarsfield requisitioned his goods in late 1689. Brown claimed that these goods had been set aside to help pay his debts and that he was now unable to do so. Article 13 was drafted in order to reimburse Brown and enable him to pay his creditors, the majority of whom were Irish Protestants. Article 13 thus levied a tax on all Catholic landowners to repay Brown for his losses during the war. Sarsfield was acquired by the article to certify the debt owed to Brown, a figure he put at £13,000. It's really quite extraordinary that Article 13 was included in the Articles of Limerick. The primary goal of the Articles of Surrender was to secure the estates of Catholics from forfeiture and to protect their economic futures. Yet this article levied a tax on those estates themselves. Um, quite how Brown managed to pull this off has always been something of a conundrum. And the problem has largely been a lack of Jacobite accounts of the negotiations. However, a lengthy complaint about Article 13, uh, the title page of which is just up on the screen, was made by Irish Catholics in late 1691 and is excellent and does shed some light on the negotiations from the Jacobite side. This complaint alleged that Brown managed to have Article 13 inserted on his own initiative, but that's really not credible. One vital piece of information revealed in the examination is that 12 men were appointed to represent the Jacobites in negotiations with the Williamites. Now, only three of these commissioners are named within the examination, but the identity of the other nine can be ascertained using other sources, and you can see that the commission included John Brown. The question then is what prompted the other 11 to consent to Article 13? 
Colonel Garrett Dillon would have been a natural ally. He was John Brown's nephew and was bound with Brown on many of his debts. Viscount Dillon was also a co-debtor. Sarsfield had originally seized Brown's goods and promised restitution. His support for Article 13 may have been due to a desire to rid himself of any responsibility for repaying Brown. The other army officers were probably swayed by Sarsfield. More importantly, Wauchop, Cusick, Sheldon and Galmoy all left Ireland after Limerick, so forfeiting their estates, if they had any in Ireland, and in the process any charge for Brown's debt. In addition, Sarsfield may have persuaded them by promising to undervalue the debt to be levied on Catholics, which he proceeded to do, stating that £13,000 was due to Brown when the real sum exceeded £18,000. As landowners who intended to remain in Ireland, Butler and Purcell are likely to have opposed Article 13. The attitude of the archbishops is more difficult to gauge, but I would suggest that the majority of the commissioners are likely to have either supported Article 13 or to have a few personal reasons to actually oppose it. And one final point about negotiations surrounding Article 13. It was inserted in the Articles of Limerick in the hours and minutes before they were signed by both sides. Now, that's not a new point, and it's it's long been recognised, but I would suggest that it was these last-minute negotiations which may go some way towards explaining how the Jacobite negotiators and signatories managed to sign a draft of the Articles that omitted the notorious missing clause, which was intended to extend the benefit of the Articles of Limerick to all of the Jacobite garrisons. The Articles of Surrender, signed to conclude the Williamite War, had a turbulent history in the 1690s. The majority of the rights promised to Catholics within the Articles were implemented through saving clauses in penal legislation, such as the right to bear arms. It required intensive lobbying by Irish Catholics to have even this much accomplished, as the Irish and English administrations hesitated to honour the Articles in the face of concerted opposition from Irish Protestants. Article 13 of Limerick was a different matter. Opposition to Article 13 came from Irish Catholics, not from Irish Protestants. Uh, They petitioned against it in late 1691, in 1692, in 1693, and again in 1695. This is unsurprising given the financial burden it placed upon them, yet the result was that Irish Catholics simultaneously lobbied the Irish government to implement or ignore separate articles of Limerick. Now, Article 13 was also the only one of the Articles of Limerick, and indeed any of the Articles of Surrender signed in 1690 and 1691, that the Irish and English governments consistently attempted to have enshrined in legislation throughout the 1690s and beyond. The motivation for this continued engagement with the issue is not hard to guess, for unlike the other Articles of Surrender, the overwhelming majority of the beneficiaries of Article 13 were Protestants. There was one important exception. Brown's main creditor was, in fact, Sir Stephen Rice, James II's chief baron of the Exchequer. As a Catholic landowner, Rice therefore faced the faintly ridiculous prospect of contributing to the tax raised by Article 13 to fund repayments to himself. Perhaps the most important factor in the determination of the Irish government to implement Article 13 was that at least 12 members of the Irish House of Commons were creditors to Brown, and these men provided vital support within Parliament and at the Privy Council. Between 1692 and 1709, no less than 10 legislative measures were proposed to implement Article 13. Three of these were formally presented to the Irish Parliament as private bills, with two enacted, the first in 1695 and a supplementary act in 1705. Neither act mentioned the Articles of Limerick by name, but their intent was clear. Both were enacted in order to settle Brown's debts by appointing trustees to sell his estate, and the 1695 act established the mechanism whereby Catholic landowners were to pay their share of Brown's debts. Catholics vigorously opposed the 1695 Act, but to no avail. Surviving receipts and accounts indicate that, by 1700, perhaps £14,000 of the 18000 levied by this special tax had been raised. 
The straitened circumstances that Catholics found themselves in during William's reign can be inferred from the fact that some of those in whom this tax was levied were found to be insolvent. Brown made up the shortfall out of his own pocket. The point should also be made that the tax was not set at a flat rate for Catholic landowners, but rather was determined by the size of their respective estates. For example, the Earl of Clinrickard was levied with at least £800. And Brown was not a passive observer of government attempts to implement Article 13. Most of the legislative measures put forward relating to the sale of his estate were done so with his support, and Brown covered the expenses involved. Again, surviving records relating to these attempts throw some sidelights on the cost of pursuing private business before Parliament and the two privy councils. Brown employed agents in Dublin and London, and his accounts illustrate the heavy charges incurred. Procuring a pardon from William III involved an expense of over £100 in gratuities or bribes for officials, not to mention fees for legal counsel and the cost of maintaining agents in England. One such agent submitted a claim for £1,000 for managing Brown's business before the English Privy Council in 1704 and again in 1705. Now, this has only really been a thumbnail sketch of Brown, um, but I'd like to sort of offer some concluding general remarks. He was considered to be a very able lawyer, but he does not appear to have had matching business acumen. His attempts to establish several ironworks within a few short years quickly drained his resources, and Brown was borrowing heavily by the start of the 1680s. His vast estate required the employment of several agents and generated a huge amount of administrative work. Moreover, the acquisition of the estate seems to have lacked a coherent plan. Only only 39,000 acres of over 150,000 were classed as profitable, with a potential rental income of just £4,000. And again, the records indicate that at most it brought in about £3,500 per annum and more regularly £2,500 to £3,000. This may be contrasted with the estate of Baron Boffin, a contemporary Connacht Catholic who owned an estate of 45,000 acres, which was valued at £8,500 per annum. Now, Brown's reputation among Irish Catholics after 1691 is not easily assessed in the absence of contemporary correspondence, but the concerted opposition raised by Catholics to Article 13 suggested it was not good. A comment by one of his legal counsel in 1697 is telling. Brown was said to have, quote, disobliged most gentlemen of those counties where his estate lies by too great a desire of extending the limits of his possessions beyond reason. Article 13 also affected Brown's family, his associates and business partners. Now, Brown's insistence on including Article 13 in the surrender of Limerick was, to some extent, understandable, as he was certainly owed large sums of money by the Jacobite administration by the end of the war. But this was surely a situation that pertained for many Irish Catholics. Moreover, the death for which Article 13 was designed to um, was designed to implement actually predated the war and were incurred by Brown to the mismanagement of his ironworks. Article 13 was, in truth, a beguiling piece of chicanery by Brown. Um, you have here now on the slide a memorial plaque erected in Holy Trinity Church, Westport, in the early 20th century, showing Brown's death as having occurred in 1711. In the 20 years between the signing of the Articles of Limerick in 1691 and his death, Brown raised £60,000 for the payment of his creditors from the sale of his estate and the Catholic levy. Even so, his debts were not fully discharged. As far as I can establish, this was not accomplished until 1729 by Brown's grandson. Brown also made substantial payments beyond the £60,000 raised, and an estimate of the total payments to creditors would lie somewhere between £70,000 and £80,000. Brown's entire estate had also been sold by 1708, though his son Peter immediately began the process of rebuilding the family's fortunes by leasing portions of the land sold from several of the purchasers. This reconstruction of the estate was secured by the conversion of Peter Brown's son, also named John, to the Church of Ireland in 1729. 
This John Brown was later elevated to the peerage as the Earl of Altamont and employed the noted architect Richard Castles to significantly augment Westport House in the 1730s. The Earl of Altamont's grandson, yet another John Brown, was created Marquess of Sligo in 1800 in recognition of his support for the Act of Union. The family continues at Westport House to this day and the current 11th Marquess, Jeremy Ulick Brown, is a direct lineal descendant of Colonel John Brown. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this HistoryHub.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the HistoryHub.ie website.